Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. What an awesome thing it is to be able to gather together in this place to sing to our great God and King who has been so merciful and so faithful to us, who often, Mr. Mark, so much, if you're anything like me, you know what it is to make a ton of mistakes. But how many thank God that we serve a God of amazing grace, amen? Let's pray together, bow with me. Father, whether we are here or watching from home, we are one family and we are gathered together under the leadership of one King. You are our great King, and it is our great joy to celebrate your amazing grace today. Lord, I pray that we would not only sing of this grace that has come to us, but that this amazing grace would work through us. Lord, may we who have received so much love, so much forgiveness, and so much compassion extend it to others. May we proclaim with our actions and with our words to a wounded and hurting world that grace can be found in you. And God, today I pray that you would heal hearts, that you would save souls, and that you would remind us all of the hope that is found in Jesus. We love you, God. It's our great joy to welcome you this day. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. How many are glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. Um, it is good to be with you. Um, today is a day that we just want to deposit into your life. You know, there are certain days because of all uh, that we are on mission together to do that we ask much of you, either to serve or to volunteer or to support the various initiatives of the church. And I think that's good because as a family, we should contribute together. But there are other days where we just want to deposit into your life. In many ways, the only ask that I want to make of you today is that you would mark your calendars for this Friday. This Friday at 7 p.m., we're going to do something we've not done before as a church, and that is to come together uh, for the sole purpose of prayer. We're going to come together for one hour, uh, uh, all of our campuses, uh, our church family from all of our campuses at 7 p.m. on Friday to pray, because we know that unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain. How many know that our victory doesn't come from our own might or our own strength, but how many know victory comes from the Lord? Amen? And so we're going to lay before him all of our petitions for this year. We're going to have listening hearts to hear his voice speak to us. And we're going to come before our, uh, our God uh, saying, Lord, this year belongs to you. But we believe that you will give us the strength and the grace and the wisdom and the guidance we need in order to bear much fruit for you. But we want to deposit into your lives a couple of things. As Pastor EJ already mentioned, uh, this book, this wonderful book on prayer, it's in the lobby, it's uh, yours. You just pick it up at either of the desks and you'll see it out there. That's our gift to you. In addition, we also know that for many, this has been a stressful year already. Last week, I wasn't here with you because my family had an assortment of uh, uh, health issues we were going through. Praise God, we've recovered and we're all well. How many things? Thank God for his uh, grace in our physical bodies. 
But it caused me to think, and many of our uh, staff to think about uh, the healthcare medical workers that serve among us. And today, we just want you to know if you uh, care for people as a caregiver, as a healthcare worker, as a part of the medical community, we want you to know we appreciate you. How many thank God for those who serve in our family, our church family, uh, those who are sick? And, and so today we want to give a gift card. If you are in the healthcare arena in any form or fashion, we want to just bless you with a gift card. We know this has been a crazy season, and a gift card is only a token of our appreciation, but maybe it can cover a meal, or maybe it can help put gas in your car, or just be a, a little bit of encouragement. Now, all of our pastors uh, will have these gift cards. You just stop and and uh, let us know who you are. We just want to be able to say thank you and appreciate you because you mean so much to us. Amen? And we're going to pray. I want to pray right now, not only for them, but I want to pray for those who are sick among us that God would show his grace in healing. Can you join me in praying? Father, we just pray right now uh, for those who are sick in body. Maybe they're at home and they're watching with us. Maybe they're quarantining. Uh, maybe they're recovering or maybe uh, someone is grieving because they suffered the loss of a loved one. Lord, comfort every heart. I pray that you would be near to us in this moment. Strengthen our bodies so that we might do your will. You're the maker of these bodies, and so we entrust them to your care. We love you, Lord. And we say thank you and amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, I am really excited to get into the Word of God uh, with you. You know, uh, as a pastor, there are certain passages of Scripture, certain sections of Scripture or books of the Bible that we are eager to teach. That, As a matter of fact, maybe it uh, has been a long time in coming uh, for us to teach a particular section of Scripture. Well, such it is or is the case for the particular series we are launching into for 13 years. Years I've been preparing and praying about teaching a portion of the book of James, and this year God has granted their prayer request, and we are going to get a chance to journey through one of my favorite books of the Bible, uh, the book of James. Now, don't worry, just because I've been preparing for 13 years doesn't mean my sermons are going to be longer, uh, but it does mean that there's so much richness here that I want you to be able to receive it. Now, how many love wisdom? How many appreciate wise people, wise sayings, wisdom on how to live life? Well, James is a book of wisdom. When you think of James, I want you to think of the book of Proverbs, but for the New Testament, for the church. As a matter of fact, no book influenced James more than the book of Proverbs. And maybe the second source that he quotes uh, that had equal uh, influence on him is the Sermon on the Mount. But both have to deal with how we should live our lives. James is focused primarily on duty more than doctrinal debate. He wants you to believe right, but even more importantly, he wants you to live the faith that you profess to believe. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this before you answer. Who is the wisest person you know? Now, wives, if your husbands are sitting next to you, uh, please answer correctly. No, I'm just joking. Who is the wisest person you know? Now, don't be too quick to answer because most of us 
will be tempted to make the mistake of equating intelligence with wisdom. But how many know there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom? There's a difference between academic success and wisdom. There are a lot of people who have academic degrees that are not wise, unfortunately. As a matter of fact, as we open to the book of James, what we're going to discover is that wisdom is an entirely different thing altogether. One of my favorite preachers is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is this uh, a British preacher who lived in the 1800s, and he had this to say about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. He says, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. In other words, knowledge is not wisdom. He says this, many men know a great deal and are greater fools for it. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. We live in the information age. There is information everywhere you turn, an abundance, an overabundance of information online, on TV. Everybody has their opinion. Everybody has some fun fact or some information for you to know. But just having a lot of information does not make you wise. What makes you wise is when you are able to rightly apply information so that you can live in a way that is not only effective and successful, but for us as believers of Jesus, ultimately lives that glorify God. Now, why do I quote Charles Spurgeon? It's because for me, he embodies this. Charles Spurgeon lived between the years of 1834 uh, and 1892, but for 38 of those years, he was the lead pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London, England. The thing about Charles Spurgeon is that he was a massively impactful preacher, but he never had academic success. Never got a degree, but he was a, a man who devoted himself to understanding the wisdom of God. And he found the wisdom of God in the scriptures, in the word of God. That is where you find the wisdom of God on how to live in a way that honors him, that brings him glory, and that brings much good to the people around you. God used Charles Spurgeon. He not only had a megachurch in a, in a season where that was not common. The 5,600-seat 5, auditorium was packed every week, but his sermons were uh, translated into 20 different languages at that time, and they were published in a number of periodicals throughout the U.S., even the New York Times. Can you imagine Monday morning nowadays opening up the New York Times and a sermon is printed there, an expositional sermon? Well, such was the case for Charles Spurgeon. It is uh, estimated that 20,000 people a week will read his sermons. And this from a man who did not have a lot of academic credentials. But what was his, the basis of his success? It was his commitment to knowing the wisdom of God. Today, I want us to delve deep, and over the next six weeks, we're going to delve deep into the book of James, because James, much like Charles Spurgeon, is a man full of the wisdom of God. As a matter of fact, James is kind of like a wise mentor or family member, and the style of James is, if you can picture this, him sitting at a table with an empty chair across from him, inviting you, pull up a chair, I want to talk to you about some of the things you're going to face in life and how you can not only survive, but to thrive in them. 
And I want to say something that's going to date some of the room. How many are old enough in here by the show of hands to remember the name E.F. Hutton? How many remember E.F. Hutton? You know you're old if you're raising your hand right now. And you know you're old if you can finish this sentence. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. That's right. Well, this is such as the case with James. When James speaks, he's so full of wisdom. He's such a wise sage that we would do well to stop and to listen. Today, he wants to begin to introduce us to uh, some wisdom. And, and I think that if we were to uh, make uh, this book contemporary, here's, here's what would be the kind of the framing of it. There's a popular saying in our day that you and I ought to live our truth. How many have heard that statement? That you should live your truth. And what that basically boils down to is this assault on the thought that there's any such thing as objective truth, that truth with a capital T doesn't exist, that all we have is our individual stories, and that is ultimately what is important. But Proverbs 14 and 12 tells us a different story. It says, there is a way that seems right to you and me, but the end of those ways lead to what? Destruction. Ultimately, if we want a life that flourishes, we don't just, we don't uh, appeal to our own truth, but we appeal to the truth found in the Word of God. And so James, he sits down, and the first thing he wants to do is introduce himself. Here's what he says in verse number one of chapter one. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Now that's a verse that's easy to breeze by, isn't it? It's a, it's a throwaway verse. It's a, the verse that you think, well, there's nothing of major import there, but there is so much value even in verse number one. This is a typical Greco-Roman introduction to a letter. You hear who the author is, who the audience is, and a typical greeting. And we learn much, number one, about the audience. Who is the audience? He says to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. What this tells us is that for James, during his time, the predominant group of believers in the early church were Jewish converts, the 12 tribes. This tells us that this is a really early letter written before Paul had really reached the Gentile world. The further you read into the New Testament, the more the church becomes by proportion more of a Gentile group and less a group of believing Jews. So for some, they would date the book of James as being one of the first, if not the first book written of the New Testament. I'll come back to what it means for them to be in a dispersion or to be uh, scattered, but I want you to notice how James refers to himself. Notice that he doesn't give us his resume, does he? He doesn't give us a long list of his accolades or his accomplishments. He simply refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is impressive to me, not only because of its humility, but because if historians are right, this is none other than James, the brother of Jesus. This is none other than James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the most influential church of the uh, early uh, days of uh, the new movement that we now call Christianity. This is James who is an apostle. Now imagine if it were you or me and we had those things on our resume, how would we have opened the letter? I can't speak for you, but I probably would have wrote, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, you better listen to me. That would have been the way that I opened up my letter. But James, showing so much humility, knows 
that our credibility is not found in our resume, but rather our credibility is found in our relationship with Jesus. Far too many of us are striving to be known for our accomplishments as opposed to our relationship with our Lord. The greatest title that you and I could ever strive for is to be known as a servant of God. How many want to be known for that? How many want to be known as a servant of God? Someone who lived to serve God. Someone who uh, gave their lives to doing what he called us to do, to reading and obeying the Lord. Trust and obey. For there's no better way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. For James, the greatest title that he ever achieved was not that of apostle or leader of the church, but it was servant of God. He's already teaching us a tremendous amount just by introducing himself. He is showing us the humility and the aspiration that hopefully all of us can embrace, and that is to simply serve God. Look at your life and ask yourself, am I serving him? But going back to his audience, he says that these are the 12 tribes that are, that are of the dispersion or that are scattered. They are scattered. These are believers in Jesus Christ that have been scattered precisely because of the persecution they encountered because of their faith in Jesus. Friends, to be a follower of Jesus in the first century was not a simple or easy thing. It came with tremendous persecution. This references Acts chapter 8 that says that in those days, a heavy persecution came upon the church such that the whole church, the whole group of believers were scattered throughout the known world except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. This was a nomadic people having no place or power among the places that God had sent them. This was a group of people that didn't have diplomacy or did not have economic strength. As a matter of fact, they would have experienced a tremendous amount of severe suffering and exploitation. Now, why do I bring this up? It's because the first thing that James wants to talk to us about is how do we survive seasons of suffering? Now, why would he want to talk to us about that? It's because in their day, just as it is in our day, it is not easy to be a Christian, but I would say even more severe for them. You would not in that day have said that I'm a follower of Jesus in order to get social acceptance. It would have been the opposite. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. That would have made you a social outcast that would have ensured probably for sure economic poverty for you unless you already had a certain amount of success economically before you became a believer because certainly after that, very few would hire you or accept you into the mainstream of culture. To get a sense of what they would have suffered through, I just want you to keep your finger in James chapter 1. Go back a couple pages with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 gives us a sense of what the early church would have suffered through to follow Jesus. Look at verses 35 through 38 with me, and when you're there, uh, can you say a big amen? I appreciate the 12 of you that said amen. I'll read. It says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now imagine that's your life. That's your lot. There was no such thing as a prosperity gospel. There was no such thing as you come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. No, but there was a promise. And what James wanted to do is to uproot the seeds of doubt that would have no doubt been planted in their hearts because that's what suffering does. He wants to uproot those with the promise of God and a hope for a future. He wants them not to doubt the goodness of God, the existence of God, the presence of God. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when life is not going our way or when suffering is intense? Don't we begin to, to doubt, do, do I have a purpose? Is, is God good? Does he even exist? James wants to say yes, yes, and yes. He exists, he is good, and he is for you. How many praise God for that truth, amen? We need to be reminded of this. And so starting in verse number two, we read these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Going to verse number 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James wants us to understand how to survive seasons of suffering. And his premise is, is that uh, it takes a mature faith to survive seasons of suffering. And, and here's how you do it. The first thing you got to understand if you're going to survive seasons of suffering is you got to have a right understanding of God's goal. God's goal through the suffering. It's not random that it's coming to your life. He starts verse number two out with a phrase that seems paradoxical. He says, count it all joy. Now, what would you expect to come after a statement like that? Count it all joy when life is good. Count it all joy when you get that job you've been praying for. Count it all joy when people are nice to you. Count it all joy when you are prospering. Count it all joy when life is going the way you want it to go. But that's not what he says, that is it. He says, count it all joy when you face or encounter trials of various kind. That not only seems paradoxical to most of us, that seems impossible. How in the world am I going to count it joy? As a matter of fact, properly translated in the Greek, what this verse really is saying is greet trials of many kind with joy. That when trials come knocking at your door, you should open up with a smile at your door and say, welcome in. Now, some of us are looking like this is where the sermon went crazy. But the fact of the matter is, is that what James wants us to be able to understand is that not only can we, we should count it joy when we face difficulties because we know we serve a sovereign God who is himself good. Friends, I want you to know something, that Satan has a whole plethora of things that he's wanted to bombard you with, most of which God has protected us from. 
We won't know till we get to heaven all of the madness that God has shielded us from. So if in his grace and his wisdom, he decides that some trials should peek through the curtain, some difficulties should visit our lives, know that he is doing it because he has a good purpose. And what is the purpose of the trial? Verse number three tells us, and it says this, for we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says the trial comes because it's a test. Now, I've said this before, I was raised by an educator. My father was an educator for 27 years. I grew up as a kid grading his papers from the answer key, grading the papers of his students on weekends. And my dad used to say these proverbial statements to me, one of which is, son, there is only two reasons for a test. Either a test will expose what you don't know or it will affirm what you do know. And what James is saying is that the type of testing that he's referring to here is not sent by God for our destruction. He is not using it in the negative sense. God is not sending tests or trials to expose what we do, don't know. Rather, it is to affirm what we do know. In other words, the trials that come to our lives prove an evidence that we really do have a genuine faith. You can talk all you want about having a genuine faith in God. How many here by the show of hands say you trust God? How many say you believe God? How many say you love God? All of that is wonderful, and you can say it all you want, but how do we really, really know? What is the evidence that we trust him, have faith in him, believe in him, and love him? It is when a trial comes, and it is not as if God doesn't know you have a genuine faith, because he sees all things, but he allows the test to come so that you and I can see the genuineness of our faith. I see your faith on display on how you walk out your relationship with God when it's not easy. And the world sees my faith and yours on display when trials come. Christianity is most attractive, not when things are great. Anybody can worship God when your belly is full, your bank account is full, your gas tank is full. That's not impressive at all. But when you, like Job, say, though he slay me, yet will I praise him, that is when people say, what is different about you? Everyone's being laid off, but you're still praising God. Sickness is sweeping throughout the land, but you still trust him. Times are difficult, but you're still being a blessing to other people. What is it about you? It's the fact that I have faith in God. The trials are a test, and the tests make evident our faith, but they do something else. They produce within us a steadfastness. Now in the Greek, this is often translated in many of your Bibles as patience, which is a weak way of translating it, honestly. Because this is not just simply a passive waiting, but rather this is an unswerving and deliberate commitment to a purpose. When he says steadfastness, he is saying that these trials toughen us and allow us to mature to a place that we won't let go of our faith no matter what comes. 
How many have been through enough where you have determined in your heart, I don't care what comes, I'm not letting go of Jesus? How many have made that decision in your life? I don't care what comes, I'm not letting go of Jesus. Now, you can't say that when you're a babe in Christ, but the trials produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, you know what you become? Complete. Now, this word complete means integrated. You are a whole person. This means that your faith, unlike most people, is not a fractured faith. It is not a compartmentalized faith. It is not a faith that only affects your Sunday mornings or segments of your life. But to be complete, to be whole, means that your faith permeates every aspect of your life. Your relationships, your thinking, your family life, the way you relate to material possessions, power, all of it is influenced by your faith. You will be perfect, entire, lacking nothing because your faith will have matured to a place where it impacts all of your life. This is what God is doing when he sends a trial into your life. So count it all joy because on the other side of the trial, you're going to be a mature Christian whose faith is fully on display so that others may follow you as you follow Christ. Amen? But then he goes on to say there's not just temporal joy but there is eternal joy. Verse number 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which comes, which uh, rather God has promised to those who love him. When we stand under trials, there is an eternal promise. So for James, joy is not based off of external circumstances, but rather it is based off of eternal promises. The promise that there is a crown of life reserved for us. We'll not only get rewarded in this life when we stand under trials, but in the life to come. Secondly, James wants us to rightly understand our sinfulness. Look at verse number 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted, or I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires or desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is giving us an anatomy, a dissertation, an understanding of the sinfulness of our own hearts. He understands that, again, one of the temptations that we struggle with is that when trials come our way, we begin to question the goodness of God. God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why is this temptation coming to me? I want to be rid of this. Have you ever had something in your life that you keep stumbling over that you wish you were rid of and you start blaming God? Why don't you just take this away from me? And God is saying back to us, no, 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 I'm not the one sending that to you. No, it is the desires of your own heart that draws that temptation to you. As a matter of fact, if we had time, I'd take you to uh, Jeremiah 17 and 9. Because no doubt, that's what James has in mind. Jeremiah 17 and 9 tells us that the heart of a man is deceitfully wicked. It is full of evil. There is a constant craving within us to do what is wrong. 
And when, he, and when he goes on to say that when sin is conceived and it is full-blown, it leads to death, he wants us to rightly picture a pregnancy that when we have conceived it in our hearts and let it uh, grow, that sin will ultimately destroy us. This is James warning us to abort sin early and deal with our sinfulness before it gets full-blown. Some of us have already begun to allow thoughts to permeate or find resident in our hearts that we should not allow to find residence in our heart. Now, you can't control when the enemy tries to solicit you to sin with an image or an invitation, but you do control whether or not you entertain that. You sit with that. And for many of us, we've not only sat with a thought, to uh, do something that God has forbid us to do. But we have already developed a plan, and the only thing that has kept us from sinning is the right occasion or opportunity hasn't presented itself yet. And if you're at that place, I would advise you now to cry out to God, God, rescue me from this. Because when you're at a place and you've already devised in your mind how you're going to do what God has already told you not to do, and the only thing missing is occasion or opportunity, then you're one step away from death already. And what James is saying is, friends, deal with that now, because if you don't deal with that thought, those images, if you don't deal with that lust and that desire and let it get into your heart and it's conceived in you and it grows in you, it will ultimately destroy you. But how many want to be free? And praise God, who the Son sets free is free indeed. God has come to set us free, and he wants to be your partner in dealing with your temptation. And how do you deal with your temptation? It's to take it from the darkness and bring it into the light. No, God is not tempting us with evil, but there is desires within us, just like a fish is drawn to the bait on a hook and lured away by the fishermen, so we are drawn to sin because of our own desires, and it drags us away from God. But God doesn't want us to be dragged away. He wants us to remain steadfast, looking to him, confessing our sins so that we might be healed. If there's something you desire that you know is contrary to the word of God, confess it and continue to lay it before God and invite the believing community into this with you. Don't keep it a secret. Satan thrives, sin thrives in the darkness, but when we invite God into it, he frees us from it. The last thing he wants us to know is about the character of God. Surviving seasons of suffering requires a right understanding of God's character. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. On, uh, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I love this. Because what he is saying is that, no, far from him being the cause of your temptation, he gives good gifts. God doesn't bring evil into our lives, but he brings good gifts. He is light upon light, and all God wants to do is to bring blessing to us. How many thank God that when God shows up, so does grace? How many thank God that when he shows up, so does mercy? 
I mean, thank God that when he shows up, so does salvation and forgiveness and all that our hearts are longing for. He gives good gifts and he is not changing. There is no shadows of shifting in him. Theologians call this the immutability of God, that God is not only good, but to be immutable means he does not change. He is eternally good. He is good forever and always. You can trust that his desires for us are good no matter what you're going through. You know what this means? That though you may not always understand his actions, you can always have confidence in his attributes. God, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen. Anybody ever been there before? God, I don't understand why you're letting this happen, but I don't have to understand every action you do because I trust your character. I know you are faithful. I know you are good. So how many can praise him because you know who he is? Even when you don't understand all that he's doing, how many thank him for who he is? And then he closes by telling us not only does he give good gifts, but the greatest gift that he gives is in verse number 18 of his, own, of, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Salvation is the greatest gift he gives. The greatest gift of all the gifts he gives is to know him. He brings forth salvation, sons and daughters, as we trust in him. So today... All of us know what it's like to go through a trial. We're going through a pandemic. We're going through our own personal issues in life. We have pain all around us. But know this, that God is good, that he's maturing us, that these difficult days only are opportunities for us to put our faith on display, that we genuinely do love God, and we do that by serving others and honoring his word, and know that in the midst of it all, he is giving us good gifts and the greatest of which is a relationship with him. And today, if you don't have that relationship, trust in his word so that you might experience what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Believe him today for your salvation so that you might experience the great joy of Emmanuel, God with us throughout all of the situations and seasons of life, never leaving, never forsaken. How many thank God you don't go through this life alone, but our Savior is with us, amen? I want you to stand with me all over this church. We're gonna close in worship as our team comes back out to lead us, reminding us of the goodness of God. But I wanna pray for us right now. Father, I pray for those who maybe need to be reminded of your goodness that today they were. I pray for those who need to be reminded of the salvation that comes through you, that today they would give their lives to you. And I pray that today there will be great joy, even for those who say, I don't understand, God, but I trust you through it. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray, amen. As we get ready to worship, don't forget to grab your book. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.